the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, The Finance Ghost and Mohamed Nala. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. This episode of Magic Markets is brought to you by Westbrook Alternative Asset Management, South Africa's leading provider of alternative investment funds and co-investment strategies. With over 8 billion rand in assets under management across South Africa, the UK and the USA, Westbrook provides South African high net worth individuals, wealth managers and institutions with a unique gateway to the world of alternative investments. This includes private debt, hybrid capital, real estate, private equity and venture capital. Visit westbrook.co.za to find out more. Westbrook Alternative Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider, FSP number 46750. Welcome to episode 63 of Magic Markets. We've got Dino Zuccolo back from Westbrook Alternative Asset Management, and it's going to be a super interesting show. We're going to really delve into some great concepts, some of the stuff I used to do in my life in corporate finance, a bit of balance sheet structuring and strategy, and we're going to learn a lot from the, from the Westbrook guys tonight. Uh, Mo, let me welcome you first, all the way from Canada, wearing a very nice shirt. Hello. Coast, always a pleasure doing this with you. And again, a pleasure to have Dino Zuccolo from Westbrook back on the show. You know, we promise this to our listeners. Uh, and I think it's just, again, the opportunity to unpack the fascinating world of alternative investments. So, you know, I think from the magic market side, Dino, welcome back onto the show. You know, the last time we did this, we had quite a bit of engagement on social media, lots of question marks. Uh, and that's testament to the fact that we like to scratch beneath the surface. So thanks for joining us again in terms of just unpacking some of these concepts and welcome to yet another episode of the Magic Markets. Yeah, thank you, Mo. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Ghost. It's good to chat to you guys and also to have had some of the feedback from your, I don't know what you want to call them, listeners, uh, readers on Twitter, whatever it might be. And looking forward to delving a little bit more, you know, into a little bit more detail into some of the things uh taking off the hood, as it may be, and uh, scratching a little bit beneath the surface to that. So, Dino, we went really easy on you in the first one because it was your first Magic Markets appearance. So that's now over. So let's get straight into it on this one. So let's deal with the question we got on Twitter first, and then we'll jump into the balance sheet stuff. And that question was around liquidity. Now, for those of our listeners who may not necessarily be familiar with the term, this has nothing to do with your Friday drinks. This has everything to do with being able to get your money. Simply put, liquidity is how quickly and easily you can turn an asset into cash. Technically, everything can be, well, almost everything can be turned into cash, but some assets require you to take a big bath when you do it and big haircut in the price and sell it at a fat discount. If you've ever tried to sell your house in an economic downturn, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Other assets are very quick to sell. If you have shares in Anglo, you press a button, wham, goodbye, and you get paid when the trade settles 
on the JSE. So in the world of alternative investments, Dino, a lot of the underlying exposures are not listed companies. That's exactly what makes them alternative. You must get this question quite often from from clients. How do you guys think about liquidity and what sort of high level thoughts and recommendations, you know, do you give your clients to think about in this process? Thanks, Ghost. And I think it is it's such an interesting conversation to have. And so maybe stop me if I go off on a long diatribe here, but you've got to get into straight away the concepts of portfolio construction. And when you mention alternatives, people say, yes, they're not liquid. And as a result, you can't get your money out if you need it urgently. And that's a concept where you've got to, you've got to also look at where your investors are based. South Africans have this fixation with liquidity. You know, what happens if things blow up in South Africa? We have riots on the streets. You know, everyone thought that wasn't possible. Yet it was. Uh, and I need my money out. Well, you know, how am I protected in the world of alternatives? And, but in the same vein, most people are actually very comfortable with investing in things that are illiquid. Look at your house. You used the perfect example. We all have either bought a house or thought about buying a house, and no one has an issue with buying a house. So I think the answer to the question is it comes to portfolio construct. Let's start at the beginning. Alternatives, by their very nature, are illiquid. What does that mean? That means that you can't click a button on your favorite share trading platform and get your money out. However, I think two things are applicable here. First of all, in my opinion, the fact that alternatives are illiquid is actually a good thing. A lot of people think it's a negative. In my opinion, it's a positive. And we see this time and time again. What is the biggest curse of a listed share is you can see the price in real time all the time. And as a consequence, people are trapped sometimes into making bad decisions based on panic behavior or on greed behavior. When things go down, I used this example in the previous podcast, everyone watches the valuations of their share portfolios reducing and uh, then they tend to sell when you get towards the bottom and you buy when you get towards the top. So illiquidity, first of all, can create a forced good behavior, which results in you holding out through volatility. And that's one of the benefits of alternatives is that concept of um, protection against volatility and also uncorrelation. Now, I'm not saying that clients don't have an element of their portfolios where they need it to be liquid, of course, you know, and that comes to portfolio constructs. Alternatives were never designed to be 100% of a portfolio. You know, in some instances, they should be 5%, in some 10, in some 20, and in some 30. I haven't heard many examples of of particularly large allocations beyond the 30% in general terms. Now, what does that mean? That means that a portfolio can include both. It can have illiquid alternatives, which are locked up for a period of time. And it can also include liquid investments. Then let's talk about the lockups. How long is your alternative investment locked up for? Not everything is like a private equity ventures capital style investment where it's locked up for five years, seven years, 10 years, even longer. For example, at Westbrook, our private debt fund investments, which we can get into a little bit more detail on if you'd like, are locked up for an initial period of either 12 or 18 months. And then clients can give us notice within a six month period and they can get their money out. So there's a spectrum. It starts at the lower end of 12 to 18 months. And then it goes along a path of three years, five years, and in some instances, longer. There are other ways that you can manage liquidity in an alternative investment as well. So even though the underlying, like your house, is an inherently illiquid asset, which you can't buy and trade and sell in and out of freely, 
there are ways that it can be done. And these ways in general include various mechanisms, which include your, your fund manager. They are oftentimes able to create liquidity for you if you need your money out within a shorter period of time, even though the underlying investment itself might not be realized. Now, that can be achieved through either using cash in the fund or liquidity facilities. So some funds have the ability to borrow to pay you out if you need. Or there are other ways that you can do it. And you can see these in some of the more popular investment platforms that are popping up around the market where if there is a marketplace created and you've got buyers at a level above the fund constantly buying and selling units or shares or whatever the mechanism might be in the product itself, you can create something referred to as a secondary market where you know people can find buying uh, willing buyers, willing sellers, and that can create liquidity in the investments as well. So I want to jump in here, you know, because I, th- I think you've raised a couple of key points. So the first being psychology. And I think on investor psychology, that's absolutely critical is that you, you almost enforce the good behavior. Because quite often, I think, you know, this click and you trade has bred a whole new mentality in terms of people muddying the lines between trading and investing. Now, what's quite interesting is that in the pension fund space globally, we've actually had pension funds initially in the early days of hedge funds. They were the first investors in hedge funds uh, because that's where they started to see different payoff profiles. You know, yes, they had similar kind of liquidity tie-ups, etc., but they pioneered that entire industry. And slowly, hedge funds migrated and became a lot more retail, uh, and then sizing became more affordable. Liquidity became uh, a, a bigger feature. And it's almost as though alternatives, if you look at private equity or whether you're looking at mezzanine debt, and we'll get into some of the details a little bit later in the show, you know, that's, we're at that phase now. So in terms of your business, you know, how much of it is aimed at the institutional investor versus the retail investor? My second question aimed around that is, are your funds open-ended or are your funds closed-ended? And the reason I ask this question is that that sometimes impacts your ability to offer liquidity to investors. So if, for example, you if it's closed-ended, but you've got a pension fund that's a happy buyer, they almost become an underwriter to that fund and help you from a liquidity perspective. Yeah, Mo. So, I mean, j- just an interesting anecdote on your, your initial point on psychology. You know, in, in my experience, and this is anecdotal, but, but it's interesting, Whenever my clients invest with us, it's always this this fixation, especially around local investments. Interestingly, clients are happier to lock their money up offshore in general because they have more trust in the systems offshore. But when they're talking about investing locally, there's this fixation with with liquidity. But the interesting point is when a deal is successful and we give them their money back, they say, we don't want it back. Thank you very much. You know, it's just like it's an interesting concept. And that's the correct behaviors, Mo, because... You know, investing, I've come to learn more and more, is all about the power of compounding. There's that often commented or often referred to phrase, it's not always about timing in the market, it's about time in the market. And that's just because of the power of maths. You know, one becomes two, becomes four, becomes 16, becomes 32. And so the longer you're in it, the more money you make. And the problem is when you buy and trade in and out of things because you want liquidity, you spend a lot of time out of the market, but also you have tax And tax is the killer to compounding because, unfortunately, let's say you pay tax at 45%. If you earn 100, you only get 55 back. Now you're you're literally handicapped because now you've got to take the 55 and get the same kind of returns as if you had the 100 before. And that, for me, is just so important for clients to understand. And and the, the behaviors that come out of that are a few things. First of all, start investing young. 
right? Because the more time you're in the market, the more money you're probably going to make over a longer period of time. And secondly, try and compound and use clever things to compound. So to answer your question, Mo, as a business, Westbrook is focused primarily actually not on institutions. And you're right, institutions are generally the early adopters to a lot of these things. Why? Because they're very sophisticated. They've got very deep levels of ability to due diligence and understand what's going on. And also, although they offer liquidity to their clients at the the client level, which means you can buy and sell all the time, because they're so big, there's an element of their capital that is actually permanent. It never... It never goes away. You know, they might have uh, levels of money coming in and out, but there's a certain level where it's always there. So they actually have higher appetite for these kinds of illiquid types of investments. Our focus is more on a direct client. So we, our bread and butter, are high net worth individuals, ultra high net worth individuals, family offices. We've also then got quite a big, you know, contingent of wealth management businesses who invest on, on their clients' behalves with us. So as a business, we were very much focused on the direct client. And I think, you know, we, you guys, have referred to it on the podcast before this concept of access and call it the decentralization or democratization of finance is something that I think is a theme of our generation and we'll see it permeating more and more which is clients accessing investments directly with the likes of a Westbrook as opposed to going through a platform which just charges more fees and takes the level of involvement or the layers in between your your investment and your ultimate holding further and further away. Uh, Mo, your second question, close-ended and open-ended funds. Brilliant question, right? The problem with creating liquidity, if you are not realizing the underlying investment. So, so let me give you a really simple example. I like to use property because everybody understands property. You've got a fund. It's got 10 properties invested in it. Really simple. Now, the properties haven't been sold. You've invested in the fund and you, you, you gave the fund manager 100 initially. And three years down the line, the properties are still owned and they're generating income. But now you want your money out and you're going to sell it to somebody who's going to buy from you. The debate, Mo, becomes what's the price? Okay, you can go and you can get a valuer to come in and say, I think the property is worth this. But the truth is, oftentimes it's nonsense because you know, unfortunately, no one really knows until there's actually been a willing buyer and a willing seller. So the conversation around close-ended versus open-ended funds. And open-ended funds mean means that you can come in and out of the fund at, let's say, predetermined intervals, but where that coming in and out of the fund isn't linked to a sale of the underlying assets or investments. And a close-ended fund is you come in, at a point in time, the fundraise closes, and then that fund runs for a period of time. Now, at Westbrook, we do both. And the answer to the question is that, obviously, open-ended funds are are probably the most powerful from our perspective as a a manager because it allows us to get to big scale. But the problem is open-ended funds aren't always possible for the reason I've just explained, which is valuations. You know, if we're investing in equity or venture capital or some kind of an underlying investment where the valuation of the actual underlying things that we've bought is subjective or difficult to ascertain, we will generally close the fund because we think it's prejudicial either to incoming investors or selling clients if we we were to do it any other way. Yeah, Dino, you see, there's so much to learn here. And that's, uh, that's the beauty of what you guys do. It's incredibly interesting and nice and retail investor focused, which obviously we love. And, you know, just to go back to that point you made around the compounding, I think if our listeners just take one thing out of all of this, it's that, you know, that power of compounding is really important. When you're paying taxes along the way, you're switching between things, you're taking too many different views. I mean, I, I use my tax-free savings accounts in the most unorthodox way. I use it as my like ETF rotation account because there's no tax. And, and that means that I can rotate exposures and I can take a view and not have that massive tax along the way. 
in all other respects, in all your other money, you can't do that. So, you know, locking up your money for, for years on end, this is what high net worth individuals do, actually. This is how private equity funds work. This is how this kind of stuff works. They have their liquid money and then they have like the family jewels. The big money is locked up in the best possible places for seven years at a time based on an overall strategy. And the reality is you don't have to be a billionaire to do that. You just need to understand how much liquidity you need as a person and how much you can afford to lock up. And then you need to find products that kind of allow you to do that. And, you know, going back to a point you made, there's a variety of liquidity options within the Westbrook world. You know, there's stuff that has liquidity over, you know, a year and a half, two years, four years, seven years, the whole shebang. And I imagine a lot of that comes down to the underlying assets. And I want to move on now to this capital structure discussion in line with that. So for our listeners, all that capital structure means, it's the mix between debt and equity. That sounds incredibly boring. When you go and buy a house, you put down a certain deposit on your bond, that's your equity, and then you get a bond from the bank and that is your debt and that's it. You can't go and negotiate or participate in preference share with the bank with a call option in three years' time, you know, unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, I'm not sure. You know, long story short, uh, the world is different in private companies and in public companies. Balance sheets become incredibly, incredibly interesting. And this is something I wrote about in Ghostmail in December. I did these balance sheets like an ice cream um, editions, you know, with a nice holiday theme to it. And the point there was it's the mix of the different flavors of ice cream basically end up being the balance sheet. There's some debt, there's some equity, and then there's all the stuff that sits in the middle, which is known as hybrid capital or mezzanine funding. And that has elements of both. So it'll have, for example, a fixed rate on it, which makes it look and smell a little bit like debt, but then it'll have some kind of profit participation kicker at the end of the term. And then that makes it look a little bit like equity. And what ends up happening is the return on that instrument sits somewhere between debt and equity. So if debt is an 8% return, let's say equity in the private space is 21, 22, the mezzanine products might look for 15% to 17%. And they can be used in a capital structure to minimize the amount of equity and actually drive the returns on equity. So that was probably what, a two or three minute uh, overview of a topic that could take a whole textbook. But I think the point is, and, and this is what I want to still touch on in this show. Westbrook touches all of those as far as I understand. You know, you can look at everything from private equity through to private debt, mezzanine. And maybe it's worth just touching on some of the high level stuff you guys do. You know, is, is it true that it's across those categories, basically? Yeah. So the important thing about our business is that we've got two distinctly different clients. We have investors who give us money and invest with us. And then we have partners who we give money to. So actually, you know, if, if you take Westbrook, but many asset management houses, in summary, and in, like in the simplest form, Ghost, we are a marketplace. We effectively are the conduits through which investors place money with borrowers and partners of ours. Now, the beauty of private market assets or alternatives, as they're better known, is that they literally are 50 shades of gray when it comes to companies capital structures. And to your point, it ranges all the way from equity to, you know, preferred equity. Then you go down to mezzanine finance. Then you've got stretch senior, you've got senior debt, and you've got all these places in between. And what are the differences? The differences are where you sit in the capital structure. In other words, where you sit in the waterfall when there's an exit event or a payout and what returns you get 
as a result for that. Now, the beauty of, I suppose, what we do as a business at Westbrook is that we have different clients on both sides with different needs. And what we're pretty good at, we, we like to think, is giving our clients what they want. I'll give you a really good example. So we have, and I'm going to go back to my property. Forgive me for always using property, but it's just really easy to understand. We have a partner. This partner is going to buy a property and that property is going to cost $100. And for whatever reason, the partner needs financing of 75 against the 100. Now, generally, what you're going to find is that in many jurisdictions, and this is a factor of interest rates and where the banks are at and various macroeconomic factors, but generally, a normal senior bank loan is not going to get you to a debt ratio or, or a funding components of 75 against your 100. The exception is, is your home loan, right? Your home loan is a little bit different, but generally on corporate loans, your, your normal range for a normal loan is 50 to 55. But now, if the borrower needs 75, let's say the bank's going to give him 55, where does that extra 20 come from? Well, normally what the borrower would need to do is go to a mezzanine funder, which is a different house or a different division in the bank or a different set of parties, and now negotiate mezzanine funding from them. And then you've got like these complicated agreements in between all the different funders who regulate how they interact with each other if things don't go well. The beauty of what we're able to do is partners come to us and say, Westbrook, can we have 75 against 100 from you? And if we think it's a good business or if we think it's a good property or we think it's a good deal with a good partner, we might give them the 75 with a blended funding rate that is higher than had it just been a senior loan and lower than had just it been a mezzanine loan. But then what we're able to do on the other end of this, when it comes to our clients, is we don't have to then place or, or, or allow our clients to invest in the full 75 as one instrument. We can cut it up on the other end and provide different types of clients with different returns in exchange for different risks. So again, going back to my 75, what we'll often do is give the zero to 50 piece of the 75 or the zero to 55 piece of the 75 from my earlier example to our clients who want super low risk, lower returns in exchange for having a first right to their money back when this deal matures. And then we've got a base of clients and these are typically the more sophisticated high net worth clients who are looking for something a little bit juicier from us. They are looking to invest in the 55 to 75 piece this concept is called unit tranching, and it's something that we're able to employ very powerfully in order to give our investors what they want and also to give our borrowers a single, seamless, easy-to-understand experience when it comes to dealing with us. And really, I think this is where the power is in, in the world of alternatives, is we're able to now facilitate different roles for different people and in so doing actually provide meaningful funding solutions to help businesses grow. Yeah, I think that's that's fantastic because... It really highlights the role that players like Westbrook play in facilitating the flow of capital. You know, quite often you hear on a macro level, you know, the banks just aren't conducive to that. And so Westbrook comes in and plays this very important role. Where I want to go with this, and you know, the question is really, you know, in terms of investors, you've got investors on the one side, you've got your partners on the other side, their interests are, you know, diametrically opposed. You know, your partners want funding at the lowest possible price and your investors want the highest possible return. And Westbrook, again, comes in and, and tries to reconcile that. That's the role you play. But in terms of your risk management, does Westbrook look at rating or independent rating of your funds, of your various tranches, 
to your investors. What sort of comfort do investors have other than Westbrook's own impressive track record? What check and balance is there in terms of your risk management process and to gauge whether you've priced that risk appropriately? Yeah, it's it's all a question in alternatives. And so the starting point demo is that you, you can't really rate private credits in the same way that one rates listed bond instruments and the likes. So you've got to come up with alternative mechanisms in order to ensure that clients are protected. Now, there's a variety of mechanisms that are followed. I mean, you've spoken to the most important one, which is that you need to be invested with a skilled team who really, really know what they're doing and have a track record of, of performing strongly. But that's not enough in and of itself. And so what we do is we put in place a variety of governance processes and measures to ensure that we're aligned in order to ensure that our clients are keeping us honest. The most important in that is the investment committee process. Once we have done our job you know, of screening a deal and ensuring that we think it's a good deal, you need to have constituted an appropriate investment committee that preferably, and in our instances, always does include non-executives who facilitate the role of ensuring that things are all taking place above board and that they're taking place within the parameters, both from a risk framework perspective and from a you know an assessment of the credit quality of the transaction perspective in order to ensure that it's correct. In addition, Mo, and I'll say this, you know, as many times as as is necessary, the best way to keep your fund manager honest is to ask how much money they invest alongside the client. Because what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And you know, again, the philosophy of our business is different in that we are first and foremost investors. So, you know, we generally 10 to 20% of everything that we're investing into. And as a result, we wear the hat of both, you know, the the investor and the, uh, and the credit committee, if you want. And the question we're always asking ourselves is, is this something we want to invest into? Because it's actually something that we are investing into in, in many of the instances or in, in all of the instances, actually. Dino, thank you. That's been a really insightful show. And I mean, just... You know, from my side, yes, Westbrook has come on board as a brand partner here. But I can tell you and our listeners know this, you know, for Mo and I, our reputations are worth more than any amount of money we could ever charge anyone to come on one of these shows. So we work with people we respect and we work with people who have a good name and who do really interesting things. And, uh, you know, you guys tick every single one of those boxes. And I'm really enjoying this process of learning from you. I just think this alternative asset space is so fun. Uh, there really is so much going on there. And uh, you must have a pretty interesting, interesting daily life. And I think for anyone who wants to learn more about this, and there's actually two types of people, people who may want to invest with you and people who may also want to speak to you about opportunities, you know, to get invested in. In other words, if you're looking to tap into capital, Westbrook may have a fund, you know, that may be able to actually be that, that capital you've been looking for in your business that you may not have found from banks or traditional equity providers. I mean, Dino, I think just to close off the show, if you could just point people to you know, the website, where they should go, how they can reach you. Uh, that'll, be a, that'll be a great ending for this one. Yeah, I think if you, if you want anything in relation to the business, the website is www.westbrook.co.za. That's W-E-S-T-B-R-O-O-K-E. There's an E on the end, westbrookie.co.za. You can go there. You can find out as much info as you want if you're both a borrower or an investor. And again, if you're an investor there, you know, you generally do have structures as a wealth, uh, from a wealth management perspective, where you can also ask your wealth manager, challenge them, ask them, do you include alternatives in your portfolio? And if the answer is no, ask them to get hold of us. We'd love to chat them through things. Yeah. Send them this podcast and say, why not? Uh, Dino, thank you. We will have you here again next month and then we can delve into more of these issues. And I think over time, we're going to meet some more people from the Westbrook team as well and tap into some of the subject matter experts there. There's some big brains in that business. But uh, for this week, 
I think from Mo and I, thank you very much. And uh, we look forward to having you back. Yeah, thanks, Guido. It's been great having you on. Thank you, guys. Remember to visit thefinanceghost.com and monos.com for more detailed insights. This podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Please consult your personal financial advisor.